Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue to study the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 today. So we're kind of slowly working our way through this first chapter, which is very, um, very full. And just so we can get a good understanding before we move into the rest of the book, this idea of our redemption. Before we come to Ephesians 1, let's go again to the Lord prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray first and foremost that your name would be praised. This wouldn't simply be just good advice for how people ought to live today, but this is these are words to your covenant people. These are words for us to live by These are words in which you have delivered us, in which we are changed. So, Lord, we pray that you would do just that, that you would use your word to transform us, and that we would be changed as we read and hear these words today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we come to this idea of an inheritance In Ephesians 1, it made me think of an odd old movie uh, that is kind of a weird movie, but maybe some of you will know what it's talking about or remember this movie, and it's called Brewster's Millions. Does anybody remember Brewster's Millions? It had Richard Pryor in it, which probably lets you know immediately that it's not a kid's movie. Um, But I've never even seen it as an adult, which is kind of funny. I watched it a lot as a kid. Um, I, I love my parents, but they they let me watch that movie for whatever reason. I remember that movie vividly because it had this idea of an inheritance, right? Brewster, Monty Brewster was his name, and he was a minor league pitcher for the Mets, and he had a nothing career in baseball that was going nowhere, but he was all of a sudden told that he had this major inheritance from some uncle he had never met, and it was $30 million. Well, there was a catch associated with his money. He had to spend $30 million in 30 days, which in the early 80s was a little bit different than that feels today. Not that I even know what $30 million looks like today, but it's, it's a lot different. But you get the idea. And the only stipulation is, is that he had to spend it frivolously. He couldn't give it away. He couldn't invest it. Uh, he had to be at zero at the end of those 30 days. And if he was able to do that, then he would inherit the full inheritance, which was $300 million. And this seems like something that we would enjoy, perhaps, right? The spending a bunch of money that we were given, that it would seem like a good thing, right? Sounds like maybe a good deal. Well, we're going to kind of close that up when we get to the end, and hopefully it'll make sense that why I even chose this to begin with. Um... The past few weeks, we've been talking about God's plan of salvation for his people, his election or their election, their adoption, their redemption. Uh, God's plan ultimately for his people is this great inheritance, which we're going to read about today. In fact, his people are his inheritance or his heritage, those that he has set aside from the beginning of time and now has this great plan coming true in his perfect timing that they would be delivered. And like Brewster's millions, there are certain conditions associated with his inheritance, all of which have been fulfilled once and for all 
by our Lord Jesus, the eternal begotten Son of God, the Word made flesh, has fulfilled the terms of this inheritance. He's fulfilled our end so that we can have this inheritance to begin with. We've been given a sizable blessing here on earth as His covenant people living here on earth, and we've been instructed on how we should be living and how we should be thinking as a result of having this great blessing. However, we know that we await something much greater, which is eternal life with God as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn how we ought to deal with that in an increasingly difficult world. So as we consider this text, I want to look at three main ideas inherited by the Father, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then finally guaranteed until Redemption. So with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a little bit of context, we've talked about and we've discussed these ideas in chapter 1, which chapter 1 is very dense as we've noticed, that we have been chosen from the foundation of the world by the Father, that that choosing was in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we have also looked at the idea of adoption as sons and daughters of God, that also being in Christ. Last week we talked about how Christ redeemed us by offering himself as the payment of our ransom so that we can have freedom, which is eternal life with God. And what has been a passage that has been highlighted so thus far by the work of the Father and the work of the Son bringing about our redemption, there's been little explicit mention of the Spirit's work up to this point. And we are a people who believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist eternally distinct in three persons, yet the same in substance, equal in power and glory, words taken directly from our catechism. We believe that the persons of the Godhead have specific roles in our salvation, which we're going to be outlining as we really, not just here in today's passage, but really as we work through the next couple of chapters of Ephesians 1. And so part of the Spirit's role in what we're going to look at today is that He gives us hope and assurance for the world that we live in. So we're going to look first again at the Father before we move into the Spirit's work, the first point being the inheritance of the Father. Look with me again at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This passage has some translation difficulties with this idea of 
obtained an inheritance? Is it a passive thing? Is it an active thing that we're doing it? And so for a better understanding, I think it's better to look elsewhere in Scripture, looking in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, understanding that at one point the entire Bible was in Greek, including the Old Testament. And I think Deuteronomy, the translation of Deuteronomy chapter 9 in Greek is very helpful for us. And so let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'm not going to be reading from the Greek this morning, but just wanted to look, throw that out there. Deuteronomy chapter 9, 26 through 29. Again, remembering this idea of what does it mean that we have obtained an inheritance, that we have an inheritance in God. Deuteronomy 9, 26. And I prayed to the Lord. Who is this praying? This is Moses. O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say because of the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them and because he hated them he has brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out with by great power and by your outstretched arm this is Moses praying to the Lord concerning his people that he would show mercy to them who had just been caught out dancing around a golden calf. And the Lord was going to take them all out and Moses was praying to them, please show them mercy. And what was his argument? He was reminding the Lord of his ownership over the people, that they are his possession, his heritage, his inheritance. How did he gain them? How did he gain this heritage? Well, he redeemed them. He chose them. He he brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. They are his people. He has the right to tell them what to do and how to do it because he has inherited them. They are his. So when we go back to Ephesians 1, when Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance or we have been made an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And this is something that we share with every believer. Colossians 1, verses 12 and forward says, He qualifies us to share the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's that, that kind of that kind of transaction that takes place. right? We've been taken out of one and transferred to another in his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just like Israel was transferred out of Egypt into the promised land, we have been taken out of the domain of darkness, which is the life under sin and death. So then how should we live, brothers and sisters, in Christ, considering that we share in the inheritance with God and with Jesus the joint heirs that we are with Jesus. Israel rejoiced on the other side of the Red Sea. Remember the, the scene of the Red Sea when Egypt was chasing them to the Red Sea and they didn't know what was going to happen and the Lord literally parted the Red Sea that they could 
crossed through, and when they had crossed through, he closed the Red Sea back, destroying the army of Egypt. And when Israel saw this, they just broke out in song. They were so happy. And so Exodus 14 and 15 kind of uh, bring this out if you want to consider those for your own study. But as they, as 14, the end of 14 and most of 15 deal with this passage of the Lord being the one who goes out and fights their battle. They seem to have indicated the people of Israel anyway, now that they have come to this conclusion that God is fighting for them, that they are his inheritance, that they are, they have come to terms with God's relationship in their life, that he has done these things for them. Yet three days later, if you continue to read in the book of Exodus, they complain that one who was able to stand the Red Sea on its end was now not able to provide them with water. And so they complained. And later they complained about food and then about water again. And they even said things like, we wish we could go back to Egypt because being a slave with meat is better than being free and hungry. And it made me think of how fickle we are many times as believers that we would readily exchange the truth of God, the fact that he has redeemed us for the lie of quick relief and short-term gain. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we definitely know something about because we forget that it is God who has delivered us. This makes me. This takes us back to Ephesians 1 verse 12. Why did he do so? so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. This is one of the reasons why being in a church is key to the life of a believer. We all have times like Israel where we're going to long for those things that we know we shouldn't have, that we readily exchange the truth of redemption for a lie that we can have right now. The church, being among those in Christ, helps us to see the work of grace and mercy in the lives of other people. Seeing the Lord change others reminds me that He is working on me and that He hasn't cast me out. Even in those times where I'm like, Lord, I know You've done so much, but what are You doing for me right now? Being a part of a community of believers shows us that He is always at work. When I see God working in a fellow believer, I'm encouraged to know that he is still doing that with me and with others. So let us be encouraged as we walk with Christ together. Let me encourage you too to talk to one another concerning your triumphs, not only those triumphs that you have, but also those struggles. I think a lot of times, particularly in our own culture, we think it's good to rejoice together, but when it comes to those things that are we're struggling with, we want to hide because we wouldn't want anyone to think that we're not perfect, even though we know that we're all not perfect. It's good for us to wrestle with this together because we are just like that group of Israelites who just trudged through the sands of Egypt and who crossed the Red Sea but still wonder when is God going to feed us? We need to remind one another of His mercy and His grace in our lives. And that brings us to the next point, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Look with me, Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him, 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters into our discussion more directly now as we are told that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. At the moment that we believe in Him, and Paul goes to great lengths to make sure we understand this, right? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in it, at that moment, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see other times when men and women in Scripture are filled, this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, particularly as you read through the book of Acts, which is a different set of circumstances than what we're dealing with here. You even read about Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit and then going out and doing some sort of tremendous work. That doesn't mean that, that Paul became a Christian again or anything like that, or it doesn't mean that we need to pray that the Spirit would come down, or we need to look at others and think, well, they don't have the Holy Spirit much like we do. This is very important for us to understand that as as soon as we gain belief, or as soon as we have belief in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The word seal isn't uncommon at all in Scripture. In the Old or New Testament, it typically denotes ownership and authority along with that ownership. It's very similar to the days when a letter would be written, and that letter was rolled up and it was literally sealed. Usually the owner would put some sort of wax or something on it and they would take their ring and they would seal it with their own sign. And that letter was was literally sealed. You couldn't read it unless you broke the seal. And that that seal was proof that that letter was general, genuinely from a particular person. And that seal also represented that the message was intact, right? That it hadn't been tampered with. That the recipient was the first one, upon breaking that seal, was the first one to read the message that was given to them. That that letter was set apart from other letters that they might receive. That it had specific ownership and authority and specific intentions associated with that letter. So then consider the people of God, His own inheritance chosen from the pagan peoples of the world, it's not as if God has lined up all the good people and then He's like, you know, this this little group here is going to be good for me. All of us were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And all of those that we read about in the Old Testament, much the same way when God chose Abraham, He chose him from among the pagan people of the world. He told him that he would always be his God and that Abraham would be the father of a people that would always be his people. Yet Abraham was slow to believe the promise, particularly since he didn't have any children. In order to be a father, of course, you have to have a child. God even promised him a land to put all those people in. And Abraham said to him, How can I know? That all of this is going to be true. And how did God make this real to him then? Well, he entered into a covenant with Abram. And that covenant had a very visible sign to Abram. And you can find that ceremony there in Genesis 15. We've looked at that many times together as a congregation. But you remember that 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 covenant ceremony that they went to where they killed the animals and they separated them so that there was a path between the animals. 
And remember that both parties would walk through that path representing saying that if neither one of us, or if either one of us do not uh, live up to the terms of this agreement, then let it be to us like these animals. Yet the only difference was is that God didn't have Abraham pass through the animals. He put Abraham to sleep over in the corner, and then he himself passed through. God himself passed through the animals. Essentially saying that not only am I going to hold up my end of the bargain, but I'm going to hold up yours. And if I'm not able to do either one of those, then be it to me like these animals. And he does just that. Throughout the generations, Abraham line, Abraham's line continues. The men of Israel time and time again fail to hold up their end of the bargain. All the while, God says, I will be your people and you will be my people because I cannot go back on my promises. Moses doesn't believe that God's going to do what he says and he doubts that God will be able to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. So what does God do? He uses Moses anyway. And he continues to use us in that way. David wanted a woman who wasn't his wife and murdered a man to cover his tracks. What did God do? He said to David, I will establish your throne forever. And the son of David will always be king. And he still is to this day. People of Israel sought out other gods. Anytime things got difficult, they wanted to, they wandered away and think, well, maybe God has finally stopped taking care of us. And God sent them into exile. Remember as we read and studied through the book of Hosea. But what did God say? How can I give you up, O Israel? I will always be your God and you will always be my people. Why? Because he made a promise. He sealed it with his covenant. What about all the sin? Right? What do we do with all the sin that we, that we have, that we have that they had? People of God are continually sinners and deserve hell, yet God desires a people for himself and wants to give them eternal life because they are his. They are his heritage. So then what does God do in order to secure this? He keeps up our end of the bargain. And this is where Jesus comes in. He came. Jesus came. He came and he walked the line perfectly. He followed every law. Every single jot of the law he followed. And he kept up our end of the bargain when we couldn't. And not only that, but he also took the punishment for my sin. So he lived a perfect life and then he took mine and yours, our sin upon himself so that we could share in his inheritance. And how do we know that he's going to deliver on that promise? How do we know that those things are true? That when he says that you, that I am your righteousness and I have taken your sin, how do I know that this isn't just some big game? That when I get to the end of my line and I die and I'm going to stand before him, he's going to say all of that wasn't true just for you. Some of you may feel like that this morning. Well, because those promises were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal. He is the promise in the, he was promised in the Old Testament as we read today from the book of Joel. 
And today he is the seal by which we know we are really God's people and that he is really our God. And that brings us to the last point, guaranteed until redemption. Look with me again at verse 14. I'll read 13 with it so we can see those two together. In him, you're also, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The King James uses a different word, which I like better only because it makes sense to us today. Even he, the King James uses the word earnest here instead of guarantee, which if you've ever bought a house, you probably understand this. When we bought our house here in Murray, we, we put a contract on it, right? We saw the house, you know how things work. You say, okay, I want this house, and you put a contract on it. And at some point in that process, we put down a sum of money associated with that contract. And what is that money called? It's called earnest money. But the idea being that, I'm, here's some money. I really want to buy this house. And I, here's some money to prove it. And it's not just a few bucks. It's a sizable sum of money. So much so that it would hurt me to lose that money. But I, I would only lose that money if I went back on my promise. It's basically a way of saying I'm serious about my commitment to what I gave to you, which was I'm going to buy this house. It's a way for the seller to have some confidence that we're not going to back out, that they're not going to have to start that whole process over again. If you've ever been through that, you know how bad it is. This earnest money is, again, it's significant. It would hurt us if we backed out. So consider the implications of that understanding of the word earnest or guarantee here in the ESV concerning our text. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, is our earnest concerning this inheritance that we have. God, the Creator of all things, the One who said light and light became, He literally spoke light and all things into existence, the one who existed forever before and after has not only chosen a people for himself from the foundation of the earth, but became like them in order to give up his life to purchase their redemption. And on top of that, comes again as the earnest payment, as the guarantee, as our way of knowing that he will follow through on the promises that he has made. Let that soak in. That if God doesn't follow through with these promises, that he could lose himself. I have two very strong emotions when I hear this and I think hard about it. First, I want to crawl up underneath a table in shame and embarrassment. And I never also, I never want to stop worshiping him as a result of these things. I want to crawl under a table because I know that part of me would take all of that and say, you know what, God? I think I know better than you. That's exactly what we do anytime we sin, of course. You know, He loves us anyway. 
And that's where the worship comes in. That's where the worship emotion comes in. So let me encourage you in a few ways here, church. First, the idea, this should change the way that we think and believe as Christians. That if the God of the universe offers himself as a guarantee, I should strongly reconsider all of those thoughts that I have concerning my doubts and insecurities about whether or not God is who he says he is. And we all have those times. And I understand that is a part of our faith. That is a part of who we are in our, in our fallen nature as we continue to fight against sin. Some of us have more of this than others, and I totally get that. Those times when you think to yourself, well, how could all of this be? How could this, any of this be true? I usually get that more so when I spend a lot of time gazing at my own sin or spend too much time thinking about all the bad in the world. Others have bad things going on in their life through no fault of their own. It could be an illness, could be family issues, could be who knows what. And some of those bad things going on in their lives is because maybe they've done something dumb or someone's done something dumb to them and maybe they're wondering, well, where is God in all of this? Right? All of us can relate with this idea of sometimes it's just hard to believe. If you don't have those times, you've been blessed with an inordinate gift. But for the rest of us, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is important here. As it's written in in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And for those times that I feel like I want to crawl underneath the table, Romans 8 reminds me that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is probably the best chapter in the Bible for understanding not only the Spirit's work in our life, but the Spirit's work in assuring me that God is one that keeps His promises. Encourage you, if you're really struggling through this idea, read Romans 8, dedicate it to memory even. If you're God's child, your assurance of your salvation dwells within you. This is something that you have because the Holy Spirit of God, His very guarantee that He's going to keep His promises, actually dwells in you. And He doesn't just dwell a little bit, right? He doesn't just dwell, if you would just believe a little bit more, then He would dwell a little bit more. That's not how this works. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and He is your guarantee. You have all of the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, dwells within each of us. One of those reasons is so that we might know that God keeps His promises and that we are still His people that He is still our God. And it is independent of how I act from one moment to the next. That should change the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we order our lives, brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, hopefully this changes the way that you see the world as well, that this great inheritance that we're speaking of here could actually be yours in Christ Jesus There's no hope outside of him. It's not like there's this other inheritance too that you can make a choice between. There is one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. Call upon his name and be saved. 
To finish the story from earlier concerning Brewster's millions, Monty Brewster does it. Don't mean to spoil the movie. It's not that great of a movie. Probably don't need to watch it. He acquires his $300 million, but in the process he loses his friends. He loses any desire that he would have to enjoy the money that he's been given. Church, I'm afraid that many times this represents our own lives in Christ. That we are in danger of missing the journey for the hope of the prize at the end. The goal of this life isn't to be soured by the world, but to look upon it Look upon the people in this world with compassion, wanting to give them the hope that we have found in Christ. So the question is for you, do you feel like you found hope? We have this great prize at the end, inheritance with this time of Jesus, eternal life, but it's the journey to that prize, the life right now even, that prepares us to enjoy that time when we get there. And unlike Monty Brewster, we have been given a great counselor, helper, and a friend to tell us, to remind us, to be our voice in prayer even when we don't even know the words to say. And this is Holy Spirit. He is the seal of our redemption, our guarantee that God will be back to take that which is his home with him. Until he does, let us, brothers and sisters, endeavor to do the work more and more with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let us show the world Jesus Christ, that we have been chosen in him and that we have been redeemed. Let's go to him in prayer.